sermon. Um, if you would go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 24, and I don't know if you've been able, I hope you've been able to, to watch the videos that I've been putting out each week um, and keep up with where we've been. Uh, I, if you have been keeping up with that, then you know that I've just blazed ahead with our study in Genesis, and we, uh, I preached on Genesis chapter 23 last week, and if you haven't followed that, then you can go back and and look at Facebook, find me on Facebook, and, and uh, watch that video, and you can uh, catch up. But we are going to be in Genesis chapter 24 today, and chapter, uh, chapter 24 is a super long chapter. We're not going to read all of Genesis chapter 24, but this morning, as we look at Genesis 24, what we do find is a beautiful love story, and, and there are very few love stories in the Bible, but... Uh, chapter 24 is a great example of an ancient love story. In fact, this, this chapter follows uh, a similar pattern, a familiar pattern. If you were to read other literature from the time that this chapter would have been written, you would find some very similar patterns in the way this love story is written. But in chapter 23, what happened is Sarah, the, the mother of Isaac and the mother of promise, uh, dies at the age of 127 years old. And Abraham, if you remember from that chapter, goes and does a deal with the Hittites to purchase some land so that he might establish a cemetery and bury his wife. And after he buries his wife, he recognizes that he is also old and he's likely to die at any day. And so he decides that he needs to secure a wife for his son Isaac. And what we find in this chapter is a picture of biblical marriage. And so as we look at this passage today, I want us to see in this beautiful love story a picture of biblical marriage. So this story of God-ordained marriage, though, it flies in the face of everything that we practice in our society today. Marriage is under full assault from many angles today, but it didn't start just yesterday with this full assault. In fact, before the 1900s, the concept that we now call dating didn't even exist. The very first time that you find the word date used in the way that we use it today was in 1892. And in that day, when that word was used in 1892, it was used as a slang word for prostitution. Before the 1900s, a father and a mother would sit down and consider all of the eligible bachelors of their day, and they would write letters to those bachelors and ask them, invite them to come and sit down with the father and mother for an interview. And actually, the father and mother would sit down with this interview, and they would interview this candidate for their daughter and ask him about his beliefs, his lifestyle, his work, his goals, and anything else they thought was appropriate. And at the end of the interview, if the parents felt that this suitor was a, a, appropriate for their daughter, they would invite him to make visits and to walk, go on walks and things like that. But with the rise of the Industrial Revolution in, the, in America, men and women became more independent. 
parents began to uh, be less and less involved with the relationships of their their children. And youngsters began to have their youngsters. I, I don't know where why I wrote that in there, but young men and women began to have uh, uh, make their own decisions about how they would date. And on top of that, in the 1920s uh, came the vanity magazines and vanity magazines. Uh, it seemed as though they were dead set on challenging every social norm that we had. And so a young woman might pick up a vanity magazine in the 1920s and see all of these pictures of women dressed in certain ways. And they would see that their waistline was too big and their, their um, face was too blemished. And not only that, the, the articles in, the, in these vanity magazines challenged all of the norms of how a decent young woman or young man should act and set the goal on attracting men and having fun. In the 60s, this all was accelerated with the sexual revolution, so much so that in 1970, the 34% of adults were not married. By 1980, 39% of adults were not, not married. And today, it hovers around 44% of adults that are not married. So given all of this, it would seem that there is no room for godly marriage in America today. So I want to suggest that we as the church can change that. Now, not for society at large, but we as the church can change that for our children and for our grandchildren. We can change that by following the model of godly marriage for ourselves and for our children. And that godly model, I think, is established here in Genesis 24. Today I want us to consider this text and what it teaches us about God's design for marriage. And I want us to see whether we're married or divorced or single or widowed, to consider how we might lead our children and our grandchildren in this way. So the first truth that we find about marriage in this passage is that biblical marriage is anchored in the promises of God. So to find that, look with me at Genesis 24, verses 1 through 9. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to, the, to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take this, my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you, will, you shall take a wife for, your son, for my son, from there, 
But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So we find out in this passage that Abraham is coming to the end of his life. In fact, he, I think, suspects that he will die any day. And his primary concern is to see that his son Isaac is married. He calls his head servant in to promise to him. And he asks him to put his hand under his thigh and make a promise. Now this was a common gesture in this day. And when someone made an oath in this way, the oath was obligatory to the person that made the promise even after the the promise uh, the person that received the promise had died and so it was a way of sealing this promise for eternity the servant could not go back on his word unless Abraham as he does puts a, a clause in there that allows him to be free from it so Abraham wants his servant to swear that he will go back to the land of his home country and he will find an, a, a, a wife for Isaac from his own family And he makes the servant swear that he will not take Isaac back with him and that he will not allow Isaac to marry from the Canaanites. Now, there are two things that I want you to notice about Abraham's oath. First, I want you to see that Abraham trusted in God's ability to fulfill his promise through Isaac. Notice again, verse 7, that Abraham believes that God will go before his servant and prepare the perfect match for Isaac. Abraham even believed that God would send an angel to go before this servant to prepare the way. So Abraham has already seen that God is faithful to keep his promises. He's seen that in the fact that he has protected him. He's seen that in that he has caused the birth of Isaac when it was impossible. He's seen that in all the victories that God has given him. Abraham so concludes that God will be faithful to give a wife for Isaac. And this wife, Abraham, believes is just as important to the promise as Isaac is. If Isaac is going to be the father of a great nation, then he must have a wife. And Abraham doesn't believe that he can just have any wife that he can just go out and randomly pick someone. You remember the story of Abraham. He knows from his own personal experience that just randomly picking someone is not the best way to further the promise of God. And so Isaac knows, I mean, Abraham knows that Isaac must have a wife that fits with the promise of God. And brothers and sisters, your marriage and the marriage of your children and your grandchildren is that important as well. God's promises to us extend through our children and our grandchildren. And so we should first see to our own marriages, but not just to our own marriages, we should also see to the marriages of our children and our grandchildren. We should ensure that they are married to godly Christian spouses. And the second thing I want you to see about Abraham's oath is that Abraham was involved in his son's decisions about his marriage. He gives very specific instructions. First, he doesn't want Isaac to marry any of the Canaanite women. 
Now, Abraham had lived among these Canaanites for most of his life, and he had seen how they were. They were idol worshipers who lived by the law of their own lusts. And second, he wanted the selection of Isaac's wife to be God's decision, not man's. He doesn't allow Isaac to go with the servant. Now, why do you think that is? Not only did he not want Isaac to stay in the land to which he went and never come back to the promised land, but I think also he knew how Isaac would make his decisions. He knew that Isaac would pick the best looking, highest maintenance woman he could find, and he would be in a situation in which he would not be able to honor God as he should. Instead, Abraham arranges things so that the decision will be most obviously from God. Parents and grandparents, the marriage of your children is your responsibility, not just in the expectation that you will pay for your pay for the child's wedding, but in the responsibility of doing your best to ensure that your boy or girl marries a good Christian spouse who will love them and work with them to raise a godly Christian home. It is so sad that the practice of the day is just to let kids go on go just to let them go once they turn 15 or 16. Parents encourage their children to go on as many dates as possible with as many people as possible so that they can feel get a feel for what they want. This isn't a meat market though and this future child, spouse of your child or your grandchildren is is more than just uh, how they might feel about it. And children, even at 15 and 16, are blind to the most important traits in a person. It is time that we as believers get serious about marriage, especially when it comes to our children and our grandchildren. The second truth that I want you to see from this passage is that biblical marriage is based on an attitude of service. And to see this, I want you to look with me at verses 10 through 21. Verse 10 starts by saying, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. Show steadfast love to your master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the well of by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to your master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden who, whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. 
Then the servant ran and met to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. So the servant sets on his way to the city, and when he gets to uh, the city of Nahor, which was about 500 miles away from where he lived, he sets his camels down and he or he lets them uh, lay down and he goes to the Lord in prayer and he begs the Lord that he would give him a sign a clear sign of who the bride of Isaac should be and he gives this test to the Lord he sets up so that he says the woman that comes to me and I ask of her for a drink and she not only gives me a drink but she also gives my 10 camels who are with me a drink then that woman shall be the one that I should choose. So when he gets to the well, and he he sees this woman coming, and he immediately goes to her, and he says, he he puts this test to her, ask her for a drink. And this woman named Rebecca, she draws water for him, but not only does she draw water for him, but she goes and she draws water for his ten camels. Now by the way, This is a lot of water. In fact, this is literally a ton of water. A camel would not be filled up until they had drunk 25 gallons of water. And so he has 10 camels. You can do the math. She has hauled, by the time she has watered to their fill all of the camels, it would have been 250 gallons of water. Now, a gallon of water weighs eight pounds. So this woman has literally hauled a ton of water to water all of these camels and this man. And I don't believe that the test that this servant puts to the Lord is arbitrary. I don't think this is just a random test that he decided to set before the Lord. I think that he knew exactly what kind of woman would make a good wife for his master. He knew that a godly wife would need to have an attitude of service. And so he devises a test that would suit that. What he finds is that God's woman goes far beyond anything that he could expect. Now, brothers and sisters, if marriage is to be successful, both spouses in the relationship must have an attitude of service towards the other. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If your marriage is to be successful, you must take an attitude of service towards your spouse. You must put his or her needs before your own. If your child's marriage or your grandchildren's marriage is to be successful, you must teach your child, your children to have an attitude of service. That involves everything that they do, from teaching them to be humble, to teaching them to share, to teaching them to love and to have compassion even for the unlovable. 
So the final truth that I want you to see from this passage is that biblical marriage is a picture of Christ's love for his church. Turn with me and look at verse 61 of this same chapter. Starting in verse 61, it says, Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. And thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lehay Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field towards evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, "Who Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all of the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So the last thing that I want you to see is that biblical marriage is a picture of Christ's love for his church. In the passage that we just read, we find that Isaac is wandering in a field as he's waiting on his future wife to return and he sees camels coming in the distance and so he begins to recognize that this is his servant returning and his servant comes to meet him and tells him and introduces his his new wife his his potential wife Rebecca to him and it says that Isaac immediately falls in love that he immediately loved Rebecca and it ta- he takes Rebecca immediately goes home and marries her and The beautiful thing about this story, the most beautiful statement that I find in this story is found in verse 67. And it says that Isaac loved Rebekah and that Rebekah comforted Isaac after the death of his mother. And in reading these two statements, I can't help but think of what Paul says about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. So as we close today, I'd invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, and let's look at verses 22 through 33. Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 33. says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, And is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ. So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands love your wives. As Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her. By the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore 
A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. In this passage, Paul gives a single command to both, both members of a marriage relationship. To the wives, he says, they are to submit to their husbands as though they are submitting to the Lord. Because the wife in the marriage relationship is a picture of the church and the church's relationship to Jesus. So just as the church submits to Christ in all things, so wives are to submit to their husband in all things. But Paul then gives a single command to the husbands. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Now, in what way did Christ love the church? He loved the church so much and in such a way that he was willing to lay down his life to purchase her. And so Christian husbands should love their wives in a self-sacrificing, submissive way to their wives. They should love their wives in a way that honors the death that Christ gave for his church. You cannot be the husband or the wife that you are called to be unless you first love Jesus. The priority in this passage is a priority that is defined by our love for Christ. One of the mistakes that I believe so many marriages, so many relationships make is that they think that fulfillment in life is found in another person besides Jesus. And so they find they try to find fulfillment in their spouse, which ultimately will be a dissatisfying fulfillment. It will be lacking. But rather, if we first find our fulfillment in Christ, then we can be obedient to commands like submit to your husband or love your wife because we first love Christ. And ultimately, our love for our spouse should flow from our love for Jesus Christ. Christian marriage is one that has an attitude of service. And so Paul says that wives should submit as the church submits to Christ. And husbands should be willing to lay down their lives for their wives, just as Christ is willing to lay down his life for the church. So friend, love is not defined by your desires or by your fickle lusts. Love is defined by the God of love. And you can never know true love till you know this God of love. Brothers and sisters, our relationships must be defined by this God of love. Our relationships are not defined by our expectations for our spouse or by our cultural um, formation and how we've come to understand love. Our love for each other must be defined by our love for God. This love calls us to serve one another and to ultimately lay down our lives for one another, whether it be our spouse or whether it be our neighbor. We are called to love as God loves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider your love, 
and the picture of godly marriage. May we be encouraged from this text to love as you love, to love with a sense of promise, to be concerned about the promises of God and to be concerned about your calling in our lives, even as we consider how we love our spouse or how we raise our children to know and to identify people who they can and should seek out for marriage. And Father, may we be committed to you first in our love for uh, you and through that love for you to love others as a result. Father, may we seek uh, out the love of our spouse only after we have sought out your love and your obedience to you. Father, bless us now as we end this time of worship. May we go from this place and care for, care for others. May we show the love of Christ in our uh, service in the world and our service to even our spouses and our children. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.